Now it's my very, very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Reed Johnson. Reed Johnson is the managing editor of Socolo Public Square. He was previously a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and a Latin American culture reporter for the Los Angeles Times in Mexico City, and a reporter for the Detroit News. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Mr. Reed Johnson. Hi, thank you all for coming out tonight. We've got a terrific panel here. We're here, we've got our blue backdrop. These are always blue, by the way. Um, we're here in a blue state. We've got our blue light. And uh, now I'd like to introduce you uh, to our little uh, blues quintet we've got up here. I'm going to start at the end uh, with Carol Mavor, who is the author of five books, among them the wonderfully written monograph, Blue Mythologies, which if you haven't read it, I suggest tonight you go home and download it on your Kindle. She also writes poetry, fiction, and essays. Uh, she comes to us from Manchester, England, where she also teaches. Yeah. Um, Next to her, I have someone I think it would probably take about all night to list all of his activities, Garrett Morris. Many of you, of course, know him as an original member of the Saturday Night Live cast, prolific stage, film, television actor uh, on shows like uh, Two Broke Girls and Hill Street Blues and films like Cooley High. He also spent a decade as a soloist and arranger with the Harry Belafonte Singers. Um, he actually began his own musical career singing in church at age five in his native New Orleans. Um, sitting next to Garrett, I have uh, Catherine McKinley, who is the author of another wonderful book, Indigo, In Search of the Color That Seduced the World, which came out of her research as a Fulbright scholar in Ghana, and her other books include a memoir, The Book of Sarah's, A Family in Parts. Uh, and sitting right here to my left is Moss Subramaniam, who in 2009 did something that hadn't happened in 200 years. He discovered a new blue pigment. He and his team at Oregon State University. Um, and he's actually brought some samples to show us tonight, maybe at the reception, <laughs> um, and some other images as well. So um, some of us might kick back after discovering a new blue pigment, but Moss keeps publishing and publishing. He also has 56 patents and counting. So, um, so please uh, join me in giving a hand to this great panel that we've got here tonight. And Carol, we're going to start out with you, and I think we may need to pass the clicker down to you as well, um, since you've got some images from us. But one of the things you write about in your book is how blue is both this very uh, color that's associated with introversion and introspection. It's very personal, it's very intimate, and yet at the same time, it's a kind of conduit to all that is celestial, oceanic, infinite. Can you, can you talk to us about this sort of paradoxical um, contradictory properties of blue and why it's such an expansive color? As I'm going to show you, I think it sometimes it seems like the whole world is, is blue. And um, it does seem to f depend on the sense of paradox and that we associate happiness and joy with the color blue, whether it be going to Jado's Arena Chapel or seeing the ocean or looking at the blue sky. But we also associate it with sadness in having the blues and feeling blue in a very melancholic state of mind. And when we die, we turn blue. So it's associated with both uh, mm -hmm. death and life, mm -hmm. happiness and sadness. Blue movies are obscene movies. Blue is the color of the Virgin Mary. So I'm very interested in this shimmering between oppositions that the color blue. Mm -hmm. 
So this is the Giotto fresco? It's from the um, mm. Arena Chapel, okay. that's right. Mm -hmm. That is not, those are blue jellyfish from uh, Scripps Aquarium. Um, mm -hmm. But the, going to Giotto's Arena Chapel gives you what Julia Kristeva calls Giotto's joy. You just have this joy of blue. Mm -hmm. So blue unravels everywhere, as I've suggested, and as I write, the ink that I use is the blue blood of the swan that blossoms and blooms into blues within blues, including Eve Klein's blues anthropometries. Mm. Um, and he even made a blue stamp. Mm. He hosted a cocktail party where everyone drank delicious drinks, and when they went home, they urinated blue. <laughs> Gainsborough's Blue Boy, the copy editor's blue pencil, the blue nose of morality, blue movies, blue stockings, examination booklets, and cheese. My ink bleeds the ice blue of glaciers, the struggle of blue-collar workers, the authority of blue coats, the snobbery of aristocratic blue blood, the incomprehensible violence of the blue hot eyes of the Aryan race of the Nazi regime, the struggles of the Blumen or the Blomon of the 13th and 14th centuries, who today would be called a black man. The beauty of the scattered light of the sky and the sea the light that got lost, the crystalline intensity of the filtered blue of the virgin's lapis lazuli cloak in Piero della Francesca's Madonna del Pardo. The optimism of the blue of the aster, the iris in the hands of Vincent van Gogh, the pursuit of novelists' blue morning flower and the air a fist has bruised. Sometimes it seems that everything is blue. Thank you for a beautiful montage of imagery and words. Um, Moss, let's talk about a different kind of blue, about the blue that you discovered. And could you walk us through the basic science and also what it felt like emotionally as you described it, your, your out of the blue moment? When you, when you found this new pigment. Yeah. Oh, thank you, sure. Mm -hmm. um, first, I want to confess, we are not looking for blue, because blue is everywhere. Um, as a, our project has nothing to do with blue. It, it happened, like, I call this a eureka moment. Mm -hmm. Because the, when I wrote a proposal to National Science Foundation uh, to make a discovery of a material which will be used in computers so that you can Im improve the memory of the computers, so I was not looking for blue. So it did it, 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 it really come out of the blue. So blue found you. Yeah. And, and can you tell us again exactly how you pronounce this new the, pigment of blue? I, I will exactly tell you now. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure some, many of you may know periodic table, mm -hmm. which has been used in every chemist or even every in school. We took the four elements, yttrium, mm -hmm. indium, manganese, of the oxides of this material, we mix them together to make this amazing magnetic material, which can be used in computers, because nobody has done this before. This is a discovery project. Mm -hmm. So we end up in taking the three oxides, indium, yttrium, indium, and manganese. You can see the color of those oxides. 
He put them in a, a gate mortar and pestle. We grinded them and we heated them. And that's what my student did. Then it came to the blue because I told the student it will be black or gray or brown. Mm. But he said, then when I went to the lab, I saw the sample. I said, what the heck happened here? Huh. Huh. That is not the four letter word I used. <laughs> I leave that to your imagination. Um, so it definitely it just amazed me because I never imagined as a chemist by mixing these two materials, I can create a blue like this. Mm -hmm. And I, I never thought, I didn't even know why nobody thought about this before. Now it's pronounced Inmin Blue. Is it's Inmin Blue, Inmin that's blue. why. It's atrium, okay. indium, manganese, okay. blues. But you've had some, uh, some inquiries from Crayola, which wants to make uh, a crayon with this new blue, but they want you to change the name of the color to that's make it more pronounceable for kids? That's because that Inmin Blue is more scientific. So okay. the, 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 the pigment companies like it because they, they, want, they can tell what is in, in the pigment, but for children they want to have a name which can be okay. easily can be related to what their activities, what they do. Okay. And, so. and Garrett, can you tell us the suggestion, instead of Inman Blue, you thought we should call it? Yeman Blue. Yeman Blue. Okay. <laughs> Ger Garrett. Yeman. Yeman. Yeman Blue. You grew up in New Orleans. You started singing when you were five. Yes. I imagine the blues in New Orleans is just something that is part of the atmosphere, like the air. Can you uh, talk about you know, your first encounters with the blues? Well, uh, talking about blues, let me say that if blues was money, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> um, my introduction to blues, you wouldn't believe it, was by a person who shouldn't have introduced it to me. Because way back there, see, blues can be a color, you can look at it, but blues is something you can feel, right? And um, it's also something, when I say feel, I mean just feel sad. I mean, when I first heard the blues, it did something to my inside that I, I to this day, I can't really explain it, but it was very therapeutic. It was very, uh, it got stuff out, mm -hmm. right? And um, I was introduced at a time when blues Blues, I don't know if, how many of you know that blues and jazz started together. Cousins. Could only be heard mm -hmm. in whole houses. How many of you knew that? <laughs> no, that's the truth. You don't have to raise that's your That's the arms. truth. Yeah, for that one. You could only mm -hmm. hear it in whole houses or the riverboats going along the Mississippi. Okay. So mm -hmm. when it emerged into the regular community, it did have that aura of being nasty. Because it came out of whole house. That's one reason why the, the evil was attached to it. So it was called evil by a whole lot of people, including a lot of churches. And I'm getting to why I should have been introduced to it by this person. Um, the person who introduced this, me to blues was my grandfather. Mm. And Reed, my grandfather, was a Baptist minister. Okay. <laughs> And suddenly he would preach, you know, and then he would come home, and he and I would listen to Ray Charles. Okay. Uh, 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 Muddy Waters. B.B. Uh, King, Muddy Waters, mm -hmm. uh, Charles Brown. Um, I mean, he was doing what you should have been doing. He was corrupting his, uh, his grandson <laughs> with the blues, okay. which is what he did, right? And to this day, for me, it's one of the ways, for me, Jazz and blues, I can't even talk about blues without, without talking about jazz and gospel. And gospel as well. Because there's a way in which they mm -hmm. fuse at a certain point. Okay. And for a long time, the churches were lying about the evilness. Because at a certain point, the, cat, uh, the not the Catholic Church, the uh, Holy Rollers, the Sanctifieds, mm. uh, and the Real Radical Baptists, they started doing that as a part of their music, right? And the thing was blown by a guy we know who just died a little while ago, had a movie about him, 
Ray Charles actually is one of the people who, when he did a number called uh, um, Hallelujah, Lord, I love myself. Let me tell you about a girl I know. That was gospel music being put into, you know, and he was called all kinds of names. Mm -hmm. But he, I think with that, he uncovered the fact that for a long time, the church is where he's supposed to not be doing this evil stuff. So again, we've got this kind of binary of, of, of the blues, that it's right. here sacred and profane, that it's, it's many right. things all at once. Catherine, can you talk about the associations that blue has in an area that you know very well, which is Ghana and other parts of Western Africa where you went and, mm -hmm. and met some really fascinating women um, mm -hmm. who were applying the blues in their daily lives, and particularly indigo. Mm. Yeah, I know it most particularly in the context of West Africa, and I travel along 11, um, the indigo trade routes in 11 countries in West Africa. And I was in search of a pigment that has disappeared. I think you've got some images too. Yeah, I have to show us. quite Molly. a few images. <laughs> this is an image from the early 1800s. It's of Malinke women in Mali, and that's an indigo dye pit. And indigo is traditionally women's work, and I was very interested in the history of women dyers. And as I did more research, I realized that it was the source of great wealth and also intellectual property that's been overlooked. Mm -hmm. And so I was very interested in that particular history and then how through a process it became, um, it became men's wealth and it became men's work. And through the transatlantic slave trade, the history was lost and it was no longer intellectual and creative capital and mm -hmm. became hard labor. And you talk in your book about how the color of indigo and the value mm -hmm. of that color got mm -hmm. bound up in the, in the slave trade. You write about how along the African slave trading routes where a length of blue cloth was a common exchange for a human life. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So t typically if you look in the ledgers mm -hmm. of slave traders, you'll find one human body traded for two yards of cloth or something similar depending on the particular value of the cloth. And also at the time of the American Civil War, um, the US dollar was so devalued that they were trading indigo cakes mm. as currency. So like gold, it actually is a, is a form of currency. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Carol, can you, um, you, you talk about sort of the, the different kinds of blues all over the world and the different associations. This is a universal kind of uh, situation of, of blue having this, this sort of resonance. Is there any culture that doesn't have it? You know, Masam, we were talking a bit about the, the uh, Hindu deities and Vishnu being blue and so yes. forth. Uh -huh. Do we find it everywhere? Is there anywhere in the world where, where blue is not sort of well, I'm not an expert way. on the world, but I'm working on it. But um, I mean, I certainly think I think Vishnu is a is a great example because he's a god that regenerates. So he has blue skin, and he's associated both with um, death um, and life. Um, you, you also talk about blue, you, you, you have another book called Black and Blue, um, which you're talking about blue as, and its associations with memory and with loss, and you talk about this in connection with, for example, Proust's novel and La Jetée and Hiroshima Mon Amour. Could you talk about that idea of blue as a, as a state of, of absence or missing or longing or, or the sort of Brazilian, you know, saudade? Uh-huh. Well, I think... Well, I associate, 
the color blue with memory. I mean, we have ideas of a blue ribbon and keeping something blue in, in those uh, ways, but it's also um, something that we can't get a hold of. So Moss was talking about the sort of scattered light that gives us the blue ocean. It's not really actually blue or, or the sky. And I think that memory is that way too, that we, we see it and we want it, but we can't quite get a hold of it. It slips through our fingers mm -hmm. like water or scattered light. Okay. Moss, uh, you were telling us um, that nature plays a lot of tricks on us, things that we, we like to think are blue or not really blue. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's true. Um, I think living organisms is not very good in making blue. Most of the blue we see around us are mostly, by the, especially by the yeah, birds and snails and also by beetles and all those insects, they don't make blue. Most of the blue come from what you call as a structural color, where the wings of the, if you look at the, the image there, you can see how the wings are made up of tiny, like Christmas trees, like mm -hmm. prisms, which only reflect blue selectively because it can reflect more, blue always reflect more. So the blue you see is not blue, so if you crush Marfo butterflies' wings, you don't get a pigment, you get a brown powder, actually. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the peacock. The peacock has no real blue pigment. Same thing with the human eye. When you, and somebody has got a blue eyes, purely because of the Tyndall effect, where you have a, something called stroma, which is the, in the iris, where you have a turbid liquid, which actually reflects only blue. So blue is not very good in me. You know, opal has no blue pigment. When you say opal with pigment, that's because of the silica spheres how it reflects. So nature is not very good in making blue. So it's not easy to make, take it from the nature and say, I'm going to crush something and make a blue pigment. Mm -hmm. But you said, actually, water is blue, but the sky is not blue, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The water is, is in a large volume. If you have a, a, a bottle of water, if I say blue, you won't believe it. But if you have a large volume of water, like a crater lake, mm -hmm. at the depth of the, of the oceans, a deep ocean, and also, for example, the icebergs, when they, when they move in the sea, you can see the blueness. That is because of the water molecules vibrates. When the water molecules vibrate, they have a three frequencies, and it creates an overtone, just like in music, and then that actually absorbs small amount of red, which makes it blue. So water is really blue. There are several articles in the, in the internet about why water is blue. Okay. Catherine, in your book you have a, a beautiful passage where you're talking about the performance of blue, but not by musicians. You're talking about the women of Ghana and a particular woman there named, we were talking about her, Auntie Mercy, and you said she was the funky, splendid Miles Davis of cloth, where each stitch, like his every note, undid his expected sound. How does one sort of kind of play the, perform the blues or play the blues in doing other kinds of things, not, not playing an instrument, but to, mm -hmm. to, to be a craftsperson or an artist? Well, cloth, cloth is very much a part of, of ritual and of everyday dressing. Dress is, cloth is language. It's worn every day. So what people wear reflects social meanings and the constant adjustment and readjustment of the cloth that you wear is a kind of social play. Okay. So a woman tying and retying throughout the day a head tie or a wrapper at her waist is, is a kind of constant play. Okay, and an artistry, would you say, too? Yeah, okay. very much so. Okay. Garrett, you have had, you've been the MC and the owner of a, of a blues and comedy club. Um, can you talk about the connection between blues and comedy? I'm and so glad you asked that. Okay. <laughs> for me. I am too now. Uh, 
I'm associated with comedy, but as I, I believe I'm not that funny, uh, but I'm glad most people have not found it out yet because I've made a living on it. But for me, the, the feeling of blues is sort of like what you're talking about, the uh, elusiveness of it, right? Because you can have, it's therapeutic, not, it's not sad or happy, it's both or in between. There's a whole bit of, bit of sweetness about blues because when a guy is singing, uh, I'm going to lay my head down on a railroad track and let the print tell he doesn't mean that. What he means is I'm mad enough, can I say it, to whip somebody's ass, right? You can say or it. to bust That's a cat. Nothing. That's really what he wants. <laughs> no, so people do that. It's, uh, Ruth, you, you, you become overdramatic. You just let it out. You let it all out. You say stuff that's ridiculous, and you want your friends to listen to you. And they can either laugh or cry, but it's, that's what the blues is about. So it's about you can be happy with it, you can be talking about a love song, or you can be talking about you know, when somebody's behind or in between, but it's, it's, it's really a feeling. And the reason I say because in New Orleans, you, it's like oxygen. I mean, music is like oxygen in New Orleans. You wake up in the morning, you're hearing it, and certainly in the French Quarter, I mean, you have some of the greatest, sometimes some fabulous musicians on the corner playing the blues, right? And so it's, it's, it's yeah, you can, the blues, more often than not, people think sadness. But it's not really, it's more um, sent sentimentality, it's more melancholia, which can be good or bad. You know, we can, we can make fun of the, Soap operas wears a lot of melancholy, right? But uh, for me, it's the elusiveness of the blues. I think it is it, it's an asset, okay. and that you know, it's not. You know, it doesn't have to be definite. Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's a feeling. You go wherever you want to go with it, and it's, uh, and I like the fact that you're talking about. Quite often, when you look at it, what you think is blue, it's not. And the blues, as you sing it, it's quite often like that. Because you think the guy's really singing about one thing, and it's really it's therapeutic. He may be singing about something totally different about just getting it out. Catherine, okay. yeah. you talked in your book about sort of this uh, personal journey that you made where you, in following the trade routes and the slave routes of the trade of indigo that you eventually kind of loop back to the textile mills of Massachusetts, mm -hmm. where, where you're from. Was that sort of connection talked about um, in the town? Was it something that people understood that they, the blues was this kind of long string weaving everything together? Not yeah. at all. It okay. was just, I grew up in a factory town. I'm from Boston originally. I grew up in a small factory town, Attleboro, and the, mm -hmm. the mills were just there. They were very depressed at the time. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was certainly a, there was a real sense of deprivation mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. loss, but it wasn't expressed through American blues culture mm -hmm. so much. But I did grow up around a, a Cape Verdean community and Cape Verdean people were very, very important to the indigo trade in West Africa. In fact, the Cape Verde Islands were founded by the Portuguese specifically to harvest indigo and salt. Mm -hmm. And so that was um, something that I learned much later in my research, but I did grow up around that community and I was aware of the indigo panos. Some of the older women would wear those, mm -hmm. those panos. Mm -hmm. And textiles were, were something I was very aware of. Mm -hmm. Moss, jumping from sort of the textile mills and the, the, the industry of the 19th century to now, where, where are some of the commercial applications of blue, including some of the things that are being discussed for your own, uh, your own discovery of how this blue could be used? And, and well, uh, the blue we discovered is, in addition to being a very 
intense pity blue, it, it, another bonus we got out of this is it can reflect heat. That means it can reflect near the near-infrared region of the spectrum, sunlight, sun rays. So if you paint this, uh, paint using this pigment on a roof of a car or a roof of a home or a building, you can keep the building cooler. We have a demonstration which I show in the, in the view graph here. You can see that the same wattage of light on a two-model home, yttrium indium manganese versus the standard blue, which is the cobalt blue, the temperature can be about 10 degrees difference or 15 degrees Celsius difference. So definitely, this why it's called cool pigment or cool blues, hmm. because it is, it can reflect, so there's application for it. Of course, as soon as we discovered a new blue pigment, several artists who want to use it. So it, it created what you call as a art industry. For example, a company in, in Australia is making paints for, for artists. We, they call them Oregon Blues because there is no name other than Inman Blue, it's called Oregon Blues. And the Crayola wants to do it now. So I, I have thousands and thousands of emails from artists and various hobbyists. Wanting to be the first to use this the blue. The first to use this blue because okay. this blue is the, mm -hmm. if you look at the, I just want to show one image of all the images, including my wife has painted some of, the, some of this using our blue pigment. So you can see everyone wants to use this, mm -hmm. uh, our blue pigment, because pig, blue pigments don't come every day. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's been since 200 years. Mm -hmm. if, we, if, we, if you look at this, among the inorganic pigments, I don't have indigo because it's an organic plant-based. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the inorganic pigment. Egyptian blue was the ancient. Next came the lapis lazuli, the ultramarine, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And the Persian blue was discovered accidentally again in 1707, 1704. And cobalt blue was discovered in 1802. Mm -hmm. And since then, people have been looking for new blue. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows how to make it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. again, that's why it's, it's amazing that we made a discovery, mm -hmm. this Enmin blue. So it, everyone wants to use it. Every company wants to use it. We have a company called Shepherd Color Company in Ohio. They licensed our patent. Mm -hmm. Because of my industrial background, I, I, I worked for DuPont for 22 years before I went to Oregon State. So I know there is a value for it. So I know so, immediately I find so, a patent. So get your requests in now. <laughs> so, um, please, get. Yes. Can I say something? That reminds me of our American product, the blues. Mm -hmm. Now everybody all over the world <laughs> has their blues. England has their blues. Mm -hmm. Germany has their blues. Mm -hmm. You have blues in Sweden. You have blues everywhere. Mm -hmm. Just like you say, the same. Mm -hmm. So the blues, I mean, people re, re, see its value uh, as, as something that's, though it's not, mm -hmm. you can't touch it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a way of expressing that particular kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. There's blues everywhere, though we, it's our product, just like jazz is our product. Uh, and mm -hmm. it was way back then, it was only done here, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. like everybody's doing yep. it. Mm -hmm. Carol, can you talk about how in sort of this deep dive into the blues that you did, sometimes, how, how your own personal associations with blue changed, and, and maybe is there an example that you can think of for you know how blues took on a, a coloration, an emotional coloration for you, or or changed the way you looked as you began to sort of understand blue, changed the way you looked at art or a particular work of art. I think, for example, I, I don't think yeah. that the song Blue Velvet has ever sounded quite the same to me after seeing David Lynch's movie you know, oh. 30 years ago. <laughs> maybe um, that was the. <coughs> maybe that was the <laughs> How about you? What? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe I could start 
backwards with, a, with more a memory, a really important memory that I have from when I was um, a child. Um, and it's interesting how these things can lodge inside you and then blossom later. And for me, it was um, a film by Guy Green um, made um, during the civil rights movement called um, A Patch of Blue. Mm. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but yes. it's, uh, it stars Sidney Poitier and um, uh, another uh, young white actress who's uh, blind, and all she can remember is a patch of blue, and she's mistreated by her horrible drunk mother, Shelley Winters, who actually caused her blindness. So, <laughs> but, um, and she doesn't realize that, uh, that Sidney Poitier is black. And there's, right, that was something really important to me about the relationship between um, black and blue, mm. and uh, that, I think that, that fed um, my interest mm -hmm. in blue and trying to trouble it a lot, even though it's a very uh, romantic and silly movie, at the same time it, it, had, a, it had a big effect on me. And mm -hmm. Guy Green could have made the film, color, it was color films at that time, but he chose to make it in black and white. So there's something quite controlled mm -hmm. and interesting mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. about it. Garrett, we were talking backstage about blues as a, as a healer and the John Lee Hooker album, The Healer. Um, can you talk about how the blues has helped you, you know, in your life and at times maybe where you really needed it to, to heal? Yeah, as a kid, I didn't realize that it, you're supposed to be sad when you listen to the blues, right? So I just loved uh, Lightning Hopkins, uh, John Lee Hooker, uh, Muddy Waters. I just loved the sound. I loved the feeling it gave to me. A lot of minor cues, keys, a lot of uh, <laughs> flatted fifths. And I won't, I won't get technical, but... A lot of that was happening, a lot of gritty stuff, a lot of, you know, dirty stuff. Um, uh, a lot of gravy, right, was in it. And I, I just, I just love to listen to it because it just made me feel good. And um, I know a lot of people even then associated, really officially the word blue with sad. But even as a kid, I didn't. It was just, I love to listen to the music. Mm. And I, for me, jazz and blues are so... For me, the best jazz is blues-based jazz, right? And my favorite uh, jazz period in the uh, late 50s going into the 60s when Doris uh, uh, Monk and all those were together. Uh, but for me, it's the, 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 the therapeutic nature of it is such that right now, when I'm at home and I'm writing, because uh, I'm a playwright too, um, uh, I, um, I have the blues on. I have these jazz of blues on all the time because it just makes me feel a certain, uh, I can't even, a spiritual thing. Mm. It's very spiritual to me. Mm -hmm. And even when they're singing the songs that way back there would be called very evil uh, or dirty, I mean, like Bessie Smith was saying, I, I want some sugar in my coffee. Well, back there, ladies and gentlemen, that was a really dirty thing. Okay? <laughs> Yeah, in the 1920s, mm -hmm. if, a, if a blue singer said, I want some sugar in my coffee, you knew exactly what she meant, okay? Um, but, um, you know, I really got reintroduced to where it could go when uh, Miles Davis and Tony, Martin, um, Tony uh, Williams and Chick Corea came out with Kind of Blue, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Then I really understood that they, they felt like I felt about it, that it was... Even, the, even, even some of the lyrics to it is, we're all blue, mm. right? We're all that feeling, that, that inner thing, mm. that's the nut of your soul, 
It can cry or it can laugh. It can go up or it can down, but it's not always anything. You know, it's anyway. Mm -hmm. Catherine, um, the blues in Ghana mm -hmm. and, and in West Africa, does it have uh, um, the same sort of spiritual resonance that it does? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it, it represents, well, it's used ritually in life and death, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. typically in many cultures, particularly Malinke culture, and through the Niger Delta, mm -hmm. they... Do you have an image you, there? Yeah, I'm sorry, Masa, if you could help image. us there. Yeah. These, are, these kind of tell a different story, but they would begin to weave cotton for a mm -hmm. cloth mm -hmm. that would be given to a child, given to a mother who would present it to a child mm. at birth, and it would become the shroud, okay. and it would be used at different times during the person's life to, to represent mm -hmm. their oneness with the supreme being and also the, to remind them of the closeness of, of life and death, okay. the presence and, of both. Mm -hmm. Let's mm -hmm. talk about indigo, because I've been saying blue and indigo uh -huh. sort of interchangeably, but they're... they're they're very different. Yes. Yeah. What What is the special quality about indigo? Well, indigo you? is it's it's an organic living thing. The indigo mm -hmm. dye pot is is a living creature that creates this this dye stuff, mm -hmm. and it's a rare dye. It was African indigo had a lot of value in the trans-Saharan trade, and it was considered one of the part of the what they call the hidden half of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most valuable goods traded with gold and, mm -hmm. and salt mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. it, um, and now it disappeared in the 1500s, it began to disappear. And then um, chemical dyes were introduced in the early 19th century in West Africa. So it's, it's still very rare. True organic indigo dye is very rare. And I think they're probably only three or four known dyers now who do a completely organic process. Mm -hmm. this, this sort of um, quality of, of indigo being blue and black at the mm -hmm. same time is something you talk about as well, Carol, in yeah. your book. And you, you, note, uh, you, you note that the, the French word bleu for blue also means bruise. Um, so, so what is blue blackness? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm very interested in all the metaphors of a bruise because a bruise, of course, we say we turn black and blue, but also um, it is paradoxical in that it's a wound that's under the skin that you're seeing your, your self bleed in a sense. Um, so it's both inside and outside of the body. So that mm -hmm. interests me. And I think it has to do with memory too. I think so often we can have real bruises on our body and maybe not know how they got there. And I'm interested in that metaphor in reflecting back on uh, my own childhood in America and the effects of, of World War II and that I feel like I was uh, bruised from those moments and that they've developed and I'm trying to think about them in terms of the relationship between okay. mm -hmm. black and blue. I, mm -hmm. I guess I found it more useful to think about black and blue together rather than black and white. And mm -hmm. in, in West Africa, it's a consummate beauty if you go back two images. Mm -hmm. Thank you. The tattooing mm -hmm. was, and scarification, they often rubbed indigo into the wounds. And if you go back, mm. okay, this woman has scarification. Uh -huh. she, this uh, is a yeah. Yoruba woman mm -hmm. in 1970. Mm -hmm. She's wearing an organic dyed indigo cloth. Mm -hmm. The patterning on the cloth replicates some of the 
scarification mm -hmm. and that kind of patterning. There, there was beauty in that. Mm -hmm. And European companies sought to replicate that in the cloths that are now known as, as African cloths, mm -hmm. the commercial cloths that you'll buy on the, mm -hmm. on the market now. Mm -hmm. oh, right. But that, that was considered a kind of consummate beauty. Mm -hmm. Mas, you grew up in Chennai, formerly known as Madras in, in India. Um, and we were talking a little bit backstage about blue there and, and sort of what it signifies in, in Indian culture, or where you see it in, in Indian culture. Could you, could you fill us in a little bit more about that? Well, um, in India, some of the, you know, we, as you mentioned earlier, that we have uh, many temples in the southern part of India where you, there is a you know, temple for every god. You can see most of the gods, which are, we call avatars, which is the avatar of Brahma, and then he mm -hmm. comes in as a Shiva and, and uh, you know, Krishna. So most of the time, Krishna, you can see it's depicted as, a, as blue skin, but it's not a skin color of the, the god. It is actually the... It represents what you call vastness, inclusiveness, and the infinite. Uh, that's why the avatar gods are always represented as, a, in Hinduism, as a, as a blue gods. Blue is considered as a sacred color, which is true in many religions. We know in the Jewish religion, it's blue is, uh, they, they have a dye called talad, which is used in zidzit, which is the, you know, a tassel in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the prayer shawl. Mm -hmm. They use them for dye. So blue really plays a major role mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the religion. So I grew up, people love blue saris because there is a famous singer, uh, M.S. Subalakshmi, which she actually always wore a blue, so there's M.S. Blue, which is, a, which is quite famous in Chennai. So blue is definitely a, a color which fascinates every religion in every society all over the and, world. And, and Hollywood too, you had a theory that uh, the, you were pointing out the word avatar is a Sanskrit in, in, word. In, in, and, avatar and is a Sanskrit Cameron's word, it's like avatar. a reincarnation, mm -hmm. it comes back in different forms. Mm -hmm. So in Hindu God, we have only one God, but they come in different forms. So when the movie came out, Avatar, Indians were very, ex very excited because it's a Sanskrit word and also uh, in this one, James Cameron used the Navi, which is the, which is the language spoken there, mm -hmm. so the, with, the, with the blue skin, Although he didn't say openly that it is, he took some clues from the, from the Hinduism, but clearly the name of the movie and also it suggests that there may be some connection actually. Other mm -hmm. Indians made some connections actually. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. That's another interesting thing is when we discovered the blue, it's totally an accidental discovery. The another blue interesting thing discovered was the Viagra. Viagra was another accidental <laughs> discovery. It is not meant to do what you're supposed to do. And our the, blue discovery, I think it is a blue uh, pill. Uh, it's well known. Uh, Pfizer made a lot of, lot of uh, you know, profit uh, out of it. Because, uh, but it only attracted mostly men. But our blue is special because it attracts the entire population, actually. <laughs> so definitely, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, there are several accidental discoveries like ours, which has received a lot of attention. And, and somehow the blue it seems to associate some of them, actually. So definitely... Our blue has received so much attention, which I never expected when I first discovered it. I thought it's another compound. Somebody said, even if you have discovered a miracle material for computers, only mm -hmm. Silicon Valley will be happy. Uh, they might have made a computer, people use it, nobody knows exactly what is inside most of the time. Mm -hmm. But our blue has attracted a wide a population of diverse population which, with diverse interest. So definitely a, a, a discovery that is for my lifetime discovery, actually. Mm -hmm. Carol. Um, the sort of journey that you've come on um, over here, we were talking a little bit backstage from, from Manchester. 
uh-huh. uh, where there's just been, as we know, a great tragedy uh, mm-hmm. occurring not long ago. Um, how has that, that city, that society sort of been acting out, you know, their own rituals, their own grief? And we were talking a little bit about this. Has, could, could you call what's been happening there? Has the blues had anything to do with that? Have they found their own sort of, you know, shade of, of expression out of this? Um, well, the, the shade has been pink, as you, as you probably exactly. know. But, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but to get back to this idea of wanting to feel something, I think that that is something that Manchester has done in a very um, moving way, in that the whole city is in grief, um, and everyone at the city center has brought... Uh, flowers and they stand there and it's silent but there's also a kind of happiness and joy there seeing everyone coming to the city and Mm -hmm. and bringing flowers so it's that they want to feel something as Mm -hmm. you were saying a kind uh, it's a kind of sadness or that what I would call the happy sad of the color blue so There's not, there's not much that's blue in Manchester because it's always gray, but um, people really appreciate the blue skies when it comes. So I think that feeling of, of, of blueness is there in uh, both a very positive and uh, breathing way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hi, my name is Vanessa Gonzalez. I have a question about the chart that was up that said Prussian blue is a serendipitous discovery. Um, I wanted to know more about what that discovery process was, if you could elaborate. Thank you. Sure. Uh, the, the Prussian blue is called also German, or the Berlin blue, because there was a, a person who discovered was from Berlin, which was a scientist, were actually trying to make a, a cochineal red. That's why they, if you look at the book written on the, on the Prussian blue, it will say it's supposed to be meant to be red. But so they had some potash, which is in the lab. In the lab, they're making this uh, cochineal red. Cochineal come from the insect. So they mixed with uh, potash and also some uh, iron containing salt, which they use it for modern, which is to fix the dye. So finally, by accident, he mixed it and then found a blue, which he never expected, actually. So it is a very similar kind of things we did. We mixed three, three compounds to try to make a, a, a semiconductor for a computer, actually, same thing. They were not looking, but they are looking. They're trying to make a more red, red dye. They end up in making blue. So it's, our discovery is very similar, somewhat. Again, most of the times, it is, it is impossible to predict the color of the compound before you make it. Hmm. I, I could never predict. Nobody could predict our 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 compounds we I showed will be blue. If that is the case, we can always create a, any material with a, with a desired color, which is not possible. In fact, many many didn't know that. You know, you can say cobalt can be blue, but I have made several compounds, cobalt is not blue. Same thing, I made several compounds containing copper, which is not green. So it is, even as a chemist, I can't tell you before I make the compound what the color of the compound will be. So the same thing happens with the Prussian blue, which was in 1704. The next one is cobalt blue, 1802, then Enmin blue in, in 2009. Next question is on your right. Hi, my name is Archie. I'm a retired swimming pool contractor. <laughs> and one of the things that's been important is that when we finish the job and we fill it with water, that the water gets blue. 
and it's got to be a blue. Can't be a green. It can't be a anything but blue. <coughs> and that makes it successful. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm interested in the idea of blue or any color really being both a pigment, in other words, something that reflects light, and also a wavelength when we see the sky, which is quite different and produced differently, obviously. And then the idea of the blues, which is a sound and a feeling. So how do you put those three together? <clears throat> Anybody? I, I, can do that. I can speak to that with indigo actually quite easily, although I'll need your help. Indigo is the light that has the highest, it can, NASA can see it from space. So it has the, it's the furthest reaching light into space. It's a sound in Ghana they would talk about the blue, about blue as a color in relationship to say death as a sound. And it's hard, it's a little bit intangible, but they would talk about it as, as being cool and re representing a kind of spirituality that's exemplified by a coolness. Mm. The cloth of mourning is made from the dye, which comes from a plant. And did I miss something? It's kind of all those things at once. The sound, the, the pigment, and the wavelength. Uh-huh. So you put them together, yes. Yeah, they beautiful. exist together. <laughs> and if you, see, if you see mourners in Ghana, now if you attend a funeral, people will wear a, a synthetic dyed black cloth, but traditionally it would have been indigo. But that um, experience of the, the layering of blueness and blackness is... It's just, it's, a, it's an incredible. And of course, it's connected to our own bodies because we can only see it through the cones in our, in our eyes, right? Right. Very cool, thank next, you. Next question is on your right. Hi there, uh, my name is Jennifer Viney, and um, I thought it was very interesting when Garrett had been talking about the fact that he uh, loved this blues music from a very young age. Um, I found in my life that when I listened to Ray Charles as a child, that I, there was something missing. I didn't understand it, and I, it didn't connect with me. And then as a, a person with some age who'd lived a little life, then it made sense to me, and it really spoke to me. What was it at that young age that spoke to you about this music? Oh, wow. Uh, I just, it was there. I, it was when, I, when I was about four or five, I just realized that was the sound around me. So maybe I'm different from you and that, that's where I emerged into that. It was just natural for me to have that as part of my environment. Um, I, um, I, wow, I mean, that's What about I, your uncle being with you? Wasn't that part of it? My grandfather. Your grandfather, that connection. Oh yeah, my, gran my, oh, my grandfather was amazing in that First of all, he was a Baptist minister who did this dirty thing of exposing <laughs> his grandson to evil music. But my grandfather was himself a singer. 
right? And he conducted the choir. I often say that my career reflects him because he was a minister who wrote sermons during the week. I'm a writer. Uh, on uh, Sunday, he preached. He's acting. I'm an actor. He conducted the choir. Uh, I'm a choir director. Matter of fact, that's my, when I graduated from college, my degree was in that. And he was a singer. Uh, but as a kid, that I was introduced to, that was people, I think maybe the reason why, because everybody around me was also doing that and singing that. So it was just like learning a language. I didn't question whether I should learn English that it was speaking. I didn't question whether I should, in fact, immerse myself into the sound that he himself surrounded me with. And, and he did it surreptitiously because he was doing gospel on a Sunday and doing blues through the week. Which Next question is on your left. Um, it's kind of a strange question. Um, I find that really good coffee um, especially coffee from like Blue Bottle and on a good day, Intelligentsia, um, <laughs> tastes like purple. Um, what does blue taste like? Oh, I want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I find interesting? That way back there, let's go back, say, 500 years, nobody was saying anything about blue, right? Mm -hmm. When was the first time somebody said, I feel blue? And why did they not say, I feel green, or I feel purple, or I feel white, or I feel black? They said, I feel blue. And from that, people began to deal with it as something that was an emotion, was a feeling. I think it though, has to do with, you know, when someone is dying, the sign of their death is, is to see parts okay. of their body turn blue. So mm -hmm. it's a, a sense of being close to something at the end or something. That sounds very logical, very mm -hmm. logical. I think the same thing. Does, so, so if you don't mind, does, what, what does it taste like? Does blue have a taste? I really want to oh, talk the about like, the taste of blue. Like? Oh, I guess it was the taste like. Can you find my blue mushroom? Can you find that in there? Do you know? Oh, okay. oh, oh, oh. That, uh. This one? Well, no. it doesn't taste like chicken, I can tell you. No, that. no. <laughs> um, I think that blue, um, there are very few blue foods. And I don't think blue really has a taste, but for me, when I thought about blue foods, and I think I have a blue mushroom that might come up sometime there, um, is it, we associate it with an artificial taste, really, like for children. Like sometimes you say, what, what, you know, what flavor do you want? And they'll say blue, and you know that they know what they mean, like blue ice cream or blue jello. Mm -hmm. um, I've always thought that blue corn chips taste better than yellow corn chips. Hello. Oh, there's the blue, mu it, because this is called an indigo milk cup, mm -hmm. and it just bleeds this blue milk. It just looks very toxic and poisonous, but actually it's not. It's supposed to be uh, quite delicious, but that's one of the few foods that I found that really looked blue, but I think that's taste is non-existent. But you said purple, which I think is like plums. There's a certain variety called nun's thighs that I've read about. <laughs> um, I think purple does have a kind of rich, juicy taste. <laughs> Next question is on your right. Jerry Hellman. Um, no, in terms of uh, sense, um, senses, um, you think, well, menthol is blue, and how did that color uh, become you know, um, a taste um, also in terms of smelling, um, what, what is the um, aroma that might be associated with blue? 
Roma blue. Hmm. Well, the indigo pot, the it, I have some cloth, yeah. <laughs> and afterwards I'll have it with me if you want to smell it. It's a very identifiable smell. It's ash, urine, and water, and the leaf. And it's quite, it's quite a wonderful smell, actually. <laughs> there are accounts. <laughs> and I have, I have tasted the dye pot, did, did and it's, just, it's a treckly smell. That's the only word I have did for you, it. <laughs> did you include the word urine? Urine. Yeah. <laughs> so because they used urine. They used urine, urine in the process the, of, yeah. of making indigo. So mm -hmm. in Greek literature, um, the ocean is sometimes described as red, but it's interpreted that that's really a word for blue because mm -hmm. of its association yeah, with making indigo yeah. and having to drink wine in order to make the urine to make the blue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in Europe, um, with the use of woad, they would use, they'd put um, barrels outside of the bars, the pubs, and dyers would use the, the barrels from the pubs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Next question is on your left. Hey, my name is Christopher Rivas. Uh, just to speak about the Greeks, I know that in the Odyssey, they don't mention blue once in the original uh, Odyssey. All of it, and the whole thing takes place on an ocean because the guy's stuck there for the rest of his life. I think much. that's where there's a word that's yeah. used that suggests red. They call yeah. it the wine dark sea, right? Yeah. In, in Homer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. uh, but my question is for anyone, if you could have one blues album, on an island, which one would it be? Oh, man. Uh, for me, uh, wow. It would, uh, for me, I have to do two things. I'd have to uh, choose two. For me, a kind of blue would be one. Uh, Miles Davis, Tony Williams, uh, <laughs> uh, Chick Corea. But also, any uh, um, thing by Muddy Waters, um, who's my favorite blue singer. I don't know about blues, but I'd have Abby Lincoln, Turtle Stream, jazz. Next question is on your right. Last year, I think it was on Radio Lab, there was something about, someone was talking about the fact that the order in which colors were named in different cultures was the same. I think they started with black, white, red, and blue was always the last one which is why the theory that wine dark sea was called that because the Greeks didn't even have a word for blue at that point. And I'm wondering if any of you up there know about that material and what you think about that and why it too, took so long to name and perceive blue. I don't know anything about it. I'm always suspicious of this idea of wanting to order the world like that. I, um, but. I, I, I think... If you look at the pigments, uh, the Egyptian blue was made antiquity, actually. It's a man-made pigment, or the, you know, made from the frit, which is by mixing copper, you know, uh, silicate, which is, the, which is the, you know, available very easily those days. So Egyptian made the blue, if you look at the mummies, and so it is known, and, and civilization can see blue, but because of some of these, some of those didn't have a blue pigment, in fact, if you look at the Neanderthal paintings in Lascaux Caves, they didn't have any blue in them, actually, only other colors like black, which come from manganese dioxide, the war available in France at the time. So it is definitely a, just because somebody didn't have a blue in their, in their, in their, in their culture or something, because the availability of the blue 
the Egyptian blue was known a thousand years BC actually, so it is, people can see the blue. There was a debate whether ancient civilization can see blue. Uh, the reason the blue was the first man-made pigment, but it's the last one to be named. Final question in front. Yes, my name is Pat Adams, and my question is sort of visual. I'm wondering if the group would explain, if, if you were to take, say, the color blue that is up there, uh, how do each, do we all tend to see things of the same shade, or does everybody see a different shade of blue, and how do we determine what makes it appealing to people in general? Even within cultures, categories of color are, they're mutable. So, I mean, there's a kind of scientific answer. Well, then, they, you know, there is a color blindness. I'm sure many of you might have heard it, or um, some folks cannot see certain colors. Uh, the Facebook is blue, if you read about it, why Facebook is blue, it uses blue, because Mark Zuckerberg cannot see the other colors properly, because he's colorblind. You can see his interview, actually, several places. So he told it was made blue. So even the perception of the color changes from person to person. You know, how many times you see, wow, this looks like a light blue, it looks like a sky blue, or it looks like a washing blue. Uh, it, it's our perception, because the way we see the color it comes from the three cones we have in our eyes, and then which is red and green and blue. And if any of them has any issues, yes, genetically or some other reasons, you can't see the color the same way other person sees it. And our eye is limited to the three colors, which can mix and form millions of colors. That's why the, our screen in the computer is RGB, red, green, and blue. Uh, but at the same time, some of the birds or some of the bees can see uh, Ultraviolet. That's why when you, hummingbirds will tend to go to red colors because bees don't go to the red, they can't see red. So it definitely changes from even human eyes, not every human eye is the same. It, it's just a, the color, what you see, is the, how your eye sees it, and how your brain reacts to that, actually. So it's a very interesting it's color is a perception rather than a real thing. It's not, it's not a, it's how the light reflects on how your eyes see it. There are also cultural categories. So for instance, indigo is very, very hard to find now in West Africa. So when I began my search 10 years ago, I would ask someone, help me go to this market and find blue. Where are the dyers or where's the section of the market where indigo cloth would have been sold? And I would say, bring me blue and the, the women who were selling cloth would bring green or yellow. Huh. Huh. And it was unnerving. <laughs> and then for a while, I realized that they're really, they are really different cultural categories. So then people would begin to fine-tune it, and they would say, bring me sky, bring me leaf, bring me... They were, you know, it was like the Eskimo thousand words for snow. So that, that was something that was very culturally specific and really, really quite wonderful. Thank you. That's a... Great final thought to end our program tonight. Before we close out, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I want to thank our partners at the Getty for making this program possible and also for hosting us in this beautiful theater. We also want to thank all of you for joining us. We want to invite you to please stick around for the reception, which is located just through the lobby on the terrace. We'll have ushers standing by to show you the way. And of course, let's thank all of our incredible panelists tonight for joining us and sharing their insights. <laughs>